All right. Well, quickly before we get into the Bible, I uh, did want to share a quick announcement with you guys. As some of you guys and gals may recall uh, Rich and Kathy Lair. They attended church here uh, for quite a number of years. Uh, and they ran the bus ministry, their van ministry. And so they would drive around town and those who were unable to get to church because they didn't have a car or the ability to drive, they would uh, drive around and pick those folks up. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, uh, Rich was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, so they ended up having to move to where they could get better help. Uh, at the same time, they were trying to uh, raise their grandson. And so uh, anyway, last Sunday, uh, Rich finally did pass away from Lou Gehrig's disease. And so just ask that you guys would be praying for uh, his family. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, a difficult time really for Kathy uh, to now be raising her grandson by herself. Uh, she's had to uh, kind of move away to get him in school. And so they're, she's in the process, her and Keegan are in the process of moving uh, to South Dakota right now to get him in school as soon as possible um, because the schools weren't ready to meet yet in Colorado. And so they decided that wasn't the best for him. But uh, anyway, uh, just pray for them, and if you knew them, uh, please reach out to her and just let her know you're thinking about her, you care about her. Um, so uh, now we can get into Matthew chapter 3 today. Matthew chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, we've been working our way verse by verse uh, through the uh, New Testament. We're on this five-year journey uh, trying to find our way through this uh, by doing a chapter a week. And Matthew, uh, just a, a great book. Uh, the initial portion of it uh, really has focused in on uh, how Jesus is the fulfillment of all kinds of messianic prophecies. And so in chapter 1, uh, we saw that he was the uh, fulfillment of the messianic prophecies by his genealogy, uh, by his virgin birth, and even by the names that he was known by. Uh, in chapter 2, we saw uh, that his birth in Bethlehem, his flight to Egypt, uh, as well as uh, the death of the children there in Bethlehem, uh, and then the fact that he was known as a Nazarene, that he lived in Nazareth, that all four of those things were fulfillments of messianic prophecies. Uh, we're going to see that continued thought today as well. Uh, in this case, though, the, the messianic prophecy that we'll see uh, is that there will be a forerunner to the Messiah, that there'll be somebody who goes in advance of him and prepares the people for the Messiah to come. And we're going to meet that guy today. Uh, he's well known to most of us. His name is John the Baptist. Uh, and here we're going to see John the Baptist preparing the way by preaching repentance uh, and a, the type of repentance that actually bears fruit in people's lives. And then at the end of that, uh, he's going to baptize Jesus. So that's what we have in front of us today. Uh, in the last week or two, what we've seen kind of behind us in our nation has been two different political parties uh, going through the process of having their conventions to nominate their presidential candidate. And so, uh, may, I don't know, how many of you saw the Democratic National Convention? couple hands there. How many of you saw the Republican Convention? couple more hands there. How many of you watched pretty much anything else on TV that you could find those nights? There you go. Uh, quite a few of those hands as well. I have to admit, um, I have been very uh, politically active uh, throughout my adult life. Uh, but this last year, it's just been, I haven't cared at all about any of it. I, I just think, you know, is, do we really need one more reason to fight? I'm not going to just talk about politics with you. I'm just not going to. I don't have the time for it, whatever it is. But for, it's just, it's been very difficult for me to get involved. And so I actually uh, did not get a chance to watch... Uh, did not take the chance to watch really either one of those. I'm not endorsing that, by the way. I'm not saying that's something you should do. 
I'm just confessing to you that's what I did. Uh, But what you see in these conventions, both on the Democratic side, the left, and on the Republican side over here on the right, both of them are bringing in people for the purpose of endorsing their candidate. Uh, They have people that will stand up on each side, and this person over here, who typically is uh, well-known for something, will stand up and say, I endorse this candidate, and here's blah, 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 all the reasons why, and that happened on both sides of the ticket. And what they're intending to do by that association is if I like the person who's endorsing this person because I like this person, maybe I'll like this person. And so they're trying to just use that to kind of connect all these people and draw them together. Well, in today's passage, we're going to see Jesus is going to receive the endorsements of three key people. And it's going to be pretty powerful for us to see those endorsements in comparison and in contrast to another group of people who wants to be the ruling class. We'll see that compared to the Sadducees and the Pharisees, how they would like to be those who are leading and ruling the people of God. But instead, we're now going to have these others who are endorsing Jesus. So as we read through this today and we look at the work of John the Baptist, uh, I'm going to see if you guys can catch the three who endorse Jesus as the Messiah, as the coming king of the nation of Israel. So we pick it up here in verse 1. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So here we have the introduction of John the Baptist. Many of you already know who John the Baptist is, but just as a quick uh, reminder, John the Baptist is actually a relative of Jesus. Uh, We see in the Gospel of Luke uh, that his mom, Elizabeth, is in some way related to Jesus' mom, Mary, and that they're both pregnant at the same time. So Elizabeth and Mary are both pregnant at the same time, which tells us that Jesus and John are about the same age here. Uh, Both of their births were pretty impressive ones for different reasons. Uh, John's birth was impressive because his mom was, uh, uh, how do we say this nicely? She was old. Uh, That's the nicest way I can think to say it right off the top of my head. Uh, She was old and of an age where it was unexpected for her to be pregnant. Uh, And Jesus, on the other hand, his mom was the exact opposite. She was young. In fact, she was a virgin, so it wouldn't be expected for her to have a child either. But because of the miraculous work of God, she did end up uh, having a baby by the name of Jesus. So these two are connected uh, relationally. They're connected in that sense. Uh, But there's also a connection here in the form of the ministry that they're going to be doing. And John is going to be the one who's going to be preparing the way for the Lord. Of course, it's a a cool thing that we see here. He's out in the wilderness and he's preaching. Uh, And so we even get to hear specifically the thing that he's preaching. He's preaching that the people should repent for the kingdom of, of God 
where the kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven, it says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message that John's going to preach. And what we'll see is he's using that message to prepare the people for the kingdom of heaven. Uh, One of the things I like to always point out when we talk about a kingdom, so if you were to have the kingdom of Cheyenne, that's giving us a location, but it also tells us if there's a kingdom that there must be a kingdom. And so in this case, he's preparing the way for the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's the location. But what we know about the kingdom of heaven is there must be a king, and it's John's job to prepare the people to meet the king of heaven, the one who would be called as, in here also, the Lord. That's his job. He's going to introduce the people of planet earth, of Israel, of Jerusalem. He's going to introduce them to the one who is their Lord, the one who will be the king of heaven. And the way he prepares them is he asks them to repent. Now, repent uh, is a, uh, a good salvation word. It's a word that we've heard before. Uh, I steal my definition uh, from Pastor Bob. So he has this uh, series of teaching that he did called Big Salvation Words, where he takes all the big words in the Bible that are about salvation that we hear all the time and we kind of generally think we kind of know what they might happen to mean. Uh, he gives us very clear definition for them. Uh, and so this is a shortened version, but essentially uh, Bob's definition is that it's a change of heart that leads to a change of action, that there should be some sort of following to your heart changing should lead to some sort of action. It's not just about feeling bad. It's not just about tears or anything like that. Uh, It's not being afraid for your life. So you're doing this because you're afraid. It's just making that choice that your heart now uh, is going to change and begin to follow after God and the actions will follow that change of heart. So that's what he's preaching to the people. He's telling the people of Israel that they need to repent. They need to change their hearts and their minds, because the king of heaven is about to show up. As he's doing this, we get this interesting description of him in verse 4 that seems kind of unnecessary, maybe even out of place. Uh, Is this really the time to talk about John's fashion? The king is coming. And on that day, John was wearing a nice little number made of camel's hair, wearing a leather belt around his waist. His diet consisted of, I mean, this just seems like kind of awkward facts to be putting in there. Uh, but again, each of these things is pointing us forward. Uh, there's this quote in, in verse 3. It's pointing us forward to the Messiah through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 43. Uh, then we see this discussion of how he's dressed here uh, is actually an illusion uh, pointing to, not I illusion, an A illusion, an illusion, not an illusion. Uh, it's, it's, it's referring to uh, another prophet that was known to be a precursor to the Messiah, and that was Elijah. And Elijah's described this same way as wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. And so we see this same description here that we see in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, of Elijah. There's all of these connections being put in place there so that the people of Israel would recognize that Jesus is their king, that he will be the king, not just of Israel, though, that he'll be the king of heaven, uh, that he's the king that they've been waiting for. So each one of these things. Uh, And I would say almost in a sense, it's as if John is acting out a part here. 
He's playing the part of Elijah by dressing this way. Uh, It's not just that he had bad hygiene or bad taste in clothing. He certainly has a bad taste in his mouth because he's eating locusts, so I can't talk about that much. But he has, it's not that he has bad clothing taste. It's not that he can't afford things. It's none of those things. This was an, an image, a visual image to remind the people of Israel that Elijah would be the precursor to the Messiah, and now Elijah has come. He's declaring himself, really, to be Elijah by the power of the Spirit who led him to do this. And it seems that it's working because the people of Jerusalem and Judea are coming out in order to be baptized. Now, there's a quick connection here I'd like to make uh, in our sermon today to the sermon that we had on Wednesday night. So on Wednesday nights, we have uh, Tom and Cody, for the most part, and a few others uh, filling in as well, teaching through the Old Testament. And they're in the book of Leviticus. And this week, they were in the book of Leviticus. Tom was in the book of Leviticus, and he covered kind of a large section there. But one of the things that he was covering in there were the things that you're allowed to eat and you're not allowed to eat. And so as icky as this might seem to us, according to Leviticus chapter 11, verse 22, you're allowed to eat locusts. So there you go. Just your little factoid that connects those two sermons. You're allowed to eat locusts. I don't know why you would. You're just allowed to eat locusts. That's the connection that I wanted to make there. Uh, Now, Mom, if you see your child eating grasshoppers, don't blame me. Blame the Bible. But the response of the people here was that they were actually going out from Judea, or from Jerusalem, it says, which is really not apparently that far from where he's at, but also the whole region of Judea to this district around the Jordan River, and they're being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confess their sins. Now, this is the first mention for us of baptism in the Scriptures. Uh, This is not something that we've seen before in this sense. This is a, a new thing, but it's really John kind of connecting to an old thing. See, John has a little bit of a history, a family history, that connects him to the Levitical priesthood. Uh, You might recall that from the Gospel of Luke, uh, that his father was serving in the Levitical priesthood, that he was of of the family of Aaron. And so he's seen the people of Israel go through various ceremonies in order to be forgiven of their sins, but also to be cleansed of their sins. And so they would have these uh, purification ceremonies where if they had uh, some sort of uncleanness in their life, and it's not always sinful, sometimes it's medical, but if there's some sort of uncleanness that they wanted to show that they were clean from, there's specific uh, purposes in the law where they would have to go and dunk themselves into a flowing river. And so they would have these ceremonies where they would go and kind of bow down under the water and come up. And the idea is, as they go through this process, they've been made clean. The difference here is this is kind of a one-time forever type clean, really. I mean, this isn't something they have to keep going back and repurifying. The reminder of the new baptism is that, that you're now clean because Christ was clean, that His righteousness was applied to you. There is no uncleanness in you. And it's kind of this moment where you're identifying with that idea of purification. Well, amongst the crowd of those who are coming for baptism, we're going to see in verse 7 the addition of a new group of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And before we read through that section and see how John responds to them, I want to give you just a brief understanding of who they were and what they believed. 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as well as the Essenes and the Zealots, uh, were groups, uh, they would call them sects, uh, but they would be just groups of Jewish people that have divided out over different beliefs about their Jewish tradition, their Jewish religion. Uh, We would call it today maybe something more along the lines of a denomination. Like they have these various divisions within Judaism. Uh, These were kind of the four primary ones at the time uh, that I mentioned there. But the two that we're going to see a lot of in the scripture is the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These two particular groups that kind of divided out over some different beliefs. So one of the main differences uh, that they saw in the way that things are approached uh, is that the Pharisees believed in all of the written portions of the Old Testament as being from God, as well as they believed in oral traditions. So even beyond the things that we see written, uh, they would pass down oral tradition with that. And they would see that oral tradition as being just as important as the, uh, the written things that we see in the scriptures. The Sadducees uh, saw it a little bit different. They really only thought the books of Moses were the word of God. They were really focused in then on the first five books of the Old Testament. The other things were just kind of helpful, historical things along those lines, but they weren't necessarily the word of God. So their focus was just on those first couple of books. Another thing that they saw completely different is the idea of sovereignty and free will. Free, free wheels? Free wheels for everyone. Free will. I get paid to speak for a living. Can you believe this? Uh, sovereignty and free will. The Pharisees uh, leaned more towards God's sovereignty, that God was in control of everything. Uh, The Sadducees didn't just lean away from God's sovereignty. Uh, They would say that free will impacted everything, that they really saw free will uh, as being a big deal to them, that they really felt like you have the ultimate control uh, over everything. So you can start to see how these lines begin to be drawn. Uh, Another thing that they would say differently is that the Pharisees would believe with us that there is an afterlife, that after you die, there's this eternal life that follows. The Sadducees do not believe in the afterlife. And because of that, they also don't believe in angels and demons in the same way that Pharisees believe that angels and demons are real. So these two groups were kind of diametrically opposed to one another. And yet you're going to see that they're also both in opposition to the things of John and to the things of Jesus. And so they're always in this kind of struggle, this struggle on how to do things, this struggle on how to approach things. But it seems like, at least for a moment, they're attaching themselves to the repentance that John is invested in here. Uh, At the very least, they're there for the big show because all the people from Jerusalem, all the people from Judea are going out there. And now here come the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And and this is just kind of my personal opinion on this. Uh, But in my opinion, what they're really trying to do is connect themselves to the popular guy. John has become very popular with his baptism for repentance. The people are seeking revival through him, and they want to be connected to the thing that's excited right now. And so it seems to me, and this is, again, just my personal opinion, but it seems to me that they're going out and seeking essentially to be connected to John because John is so popular. They're seeking John's endorsement to a sense of their different brands of teaching. Now, it's not to deny the idea that some of them might actually be sincere. 
There might actually be some of these Pharisees and Sadducees that are truly there for the right reasons. But when you see how John responds to these guys, uh, it's not going to seem like he's very, uh, very happy with them being out there for baptism. See, check this out in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Well, John's response to these Sadducees and these Pharisees who are coming to be baptized, pretty angry response. In other words, he does not endorse their ministries. In fact, he calls them a brood of vipers. Now, you may not understand that phrase, but if you went to basic training in the Air Force, you understand what a brood of vipers is. When we would go to lunch every day, uh, all the training instructors, the TIs, the drill instructors, they all sat at one long table, and you had to walk by that table with your tray, and you had to avert your eyes, because if you looked at them, now you've got a conversation with somebody you don't want to have a conversation with. And we literally called that the snake pit. That's what it was called when we walked by. That was the brood of vipers. It was the snake pit. We wanted nothing to do with them. And so, inevitably, this is the way it worked. You're thinking to yourself, all I have to do is get my empty tray of food over there to get rid of it, and then I can go outside and have 30 seconds of freedom before somebody else yells at me. And as you're walking by the table, you're thinking to yourself, don't look at them, don't look at them, don't look at them, don't look at them. And so you're walking like this, and the first thing you do is you trip over your own feet, and your plate goes everywhere, and now they're all up, and they're on you. What are you doing? They're just all over you for this tiniest little mistake that you've made. Or maybe you're just going to be the happy guy. No, I'm going to be the happy guy. I'm going to walk by, and I'm going to smile at them. What are you smiling at? There's nothing to smile about here. You just keep walking. Get your plate. Okay, okay. I mean, you just, it was the brood of vipers. It was the snake pit. That's how John is seeing these guys. He's not a fan of them. He even says this, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you that you're about to die? (laughs) And he's going to, in two different ways, allude to that, both by this axe being put to the tree in order to cut it down and burn it in the fire, and also by the idea of chaff being burnt up in an unquenchable fire. Uh, Essentially, what I think John is saying is the religious systems that you guys are invested in, God's about to tear down, destroy, cut down, and burn up because the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies Jesus Christ is on his way. He's really the king. He's really the Lord. He's really the spokesman for God. 
all of you guys, you Pharisees and you Sadducees, you're fake leaders. He didn't ask any of you to lead. He designed a system of priests and prophets, of judges. Now, these guys are none of those things. And yet they hold their beliefs over the people. Wow, God's going to, He's going to take it out. Again, He uses uh, a couple of different things to kind of get at them, to get under their skin. Uh, that first is bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is going back to this idea that your repentance should actually be uh, something that causes action in your life. There should be a fruit of repentance. Some people will say, yeah, that was a bad thing. I shouldn't have done that. And they would call that repentance. John says that's not repentance. Recognizing your sin is not repentance. Stopping the sin is repentance. Recognizing you're living a selfish life all for yourself isn't repentance. It's taking that recognition and now saying, I'm going to live instead for Jesus Christ. That's what repentance looks like. And that's what he wants to see within these people. He wants to see this changed heart. But his fear here with the, his fear here, that rhymed. Um, his fear with the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that they're just going to turn this into one more system of works. They're just going to turn this into one more thing that has the appearance of righteousness, but there's no heart for righteousness there. And so he's warning them. Hey, he then says this, look, you're, you're, you're relying on the fact that you're a relative of Abraham. God could kill every one of you and raise up new relatives of Abraham. In other words, he doesn't need you. And don't think just because Abraham is a distant relative of yours that you're somehow guaranteed to be pleasing in God's sight. Because it's not your relationship with Abraham that saves. He goes on to mention this idea that he's going to cut down and, uh, every tree that does not bear fruit, which is a theory or, or a, uh, a teaching that Jesus is going to connect to as well. We'll see that in the Gospel of John. Jesus is going to use that same idea of cutting down or cutting away those things that don't bear fruit, those vines that don't bear fruit, and those will be thrown into the fire. It's a pretty big uh, image that he's trying to get across in their ideas. You get this idea here that John does not like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he then tells them this, look, my baptism with water is for repentance, but the guy who comes after me, you think I'm scary? Wait till you meet this guy. The guy that comes after me, he's going to be baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And if you're not real, You'll be burnt up. And then he uses this picture of the wheat and the chaff, of using the winnowing fork and, and clearing the threshing floor. And it's a, a very good visual image that you would get if you're into agriculture and farming at that time. Uh, to put it into terms we might understand, it, it's he's taking a pitchfork and he's throwing the wheat up in the air. And as he does that, the Wyoming wind blows through that and takes all the stuff that's not wheat out. It just blows it away. It blows out. And then you have the bigger chunks. That is the wheat. That's the good stuff. We keep that. And he's just going through this process. Well, that's what Jesus is about to do. He's about to separate the wheat from the chaff. And then that that is chaff, that is worthless, that is unusable, both in us individually, but ultimately within those who are his people, those that are useless to him will be burnt with an unquenchable fire. Now, for him, useless isn't based on whether you have skills or talents. 
Useless is based on whether you worship yourself or you worship him. That's really going to be the big difference that we're going to see in the lives of these different people. Uh, and the recognition will become quite obvious for the Pharisees and Sadducees. If, in fact, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things, and if, in fact, John is a prophet, as the Pharisees and Sadducees seem to think because they're showing up, and he tells them to follow Jesus, and yet they don't, the evidence is then that they're rejecting the things of God because they wanted to hold on to the things that they had. And so there's going to be this dividing line, this separation, uh, this taking what is no longer bearing fruit and burning it up, these things that are just chaff, that are the useless parts of the wheat, and burning it up with an unquenchable fire. But there is this one who's coming, the one who comes after them, and he's the one that we're going to meet next in verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of, heaven, out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus now reappears. All we've seen of Jesus in the first two chapters of this book has been baby Jesus. He's been in the manger. He's been in the house. He's received gifts. He's said nothing up until this point. We finally meet Jesus in chapter 3. Uh, what Matthew doesn't make clear to us, but John does, uh, that Jesus is about 30 years old at this point. So there's a big gap there that, that Matthew doesn't cover, but now Jesus, about 30 years old, arrives on the scene. And there might be an important connection there, I'm not sure, uh, but uh, the Levitical priests, now Jesus was not a Levitical priest, but the way the Levitical priesthood was arranged was that they went into training for ministry at 20, and they began serving at 30, and they served until they were 50, and then from 50 on, they trained up the 20 to 30-year-olds. That was kind of the system that God had built up with the Levitical priesthood. So now Jesus is coming to start his ministry, and he begins his ministry at about 30 years old. And so there's kind of that just neat connection there uh, that you can see that. And then I always connect myself to that. There's uh, for me, uh, I was involved kind of in some part-time volunteer ministries early on in my life, uh, but when I was 30 years old is when I came on full-time here at the church. And so I've always kind of connected myself to that idea, this connection that those first 10 years or so when I was in ministry were really just about preparing me for what was to come next in ministry when I came into kind of a full-time setting. And I also take it in these terms as well, uh, that by the time I'm around 50, 
I want to spend more time training other people for ministry than I actually am invested in doing the ministry. I think there's so much value in that picture here. But we connect this now to Jesus being about that same age. It's about the time uh, that a Jewish man would begin his ministry if he was serving God. And so Jesus now again just kind of meets all the requirements, ticks all the boxes but they, that they would uh, ask for. He's coming from Galilee, which we saw in chapter 2. His family had moved to Galilee to a city of Nazareth, and he's kind of made this journey down from northern Israel to southern Israel down here in Judah, and he's following now uh, the Jordan River where they're going to meet up with John. And when he comes to John to be baptized, if you can imagine this crazy scene, John is baptizing people for repentance. But Jesus has never sinned, and so John's like, well, what do you have to repent of? And again, this is inspired by God. This is God informing John, who is this prophet here, But the one who's coming, the Messiah, wouldn't need baptized. But Jesus says, go ahead and allow it for this time. I love how John does what Jesus says. How cool is that, right? Well, this doesn't make any sense to me, God. Did I ask you to understand it or to do it? (laughs) Okay, let's do it. And so he does, in fact, permit it. And Jesus, his first words that we see here in, in the Gospel of Matthew are these, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. It was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. For us to fulfill all righteousness. I would say it like this. If our Savior, Jesus Christ, felt it was important for him to be baptized... I would suggest to us, as followers of him, that we've seen his example and we follow it. It is a baffling thing for me when somebody tells me that Jesus Christ is their Lord, but they haven't been baptized. It it doesn't connect in my mind. Jesus here, by example, shows us to be baptized. And then his last words, so here his first words are, He's going to be baptized. His last words in the Great Commission, go therefore and baptize them. Go make disciples of all the nations and baptize them. It seems to me his first and his last words in ministry were about baptism. And if we stand up and say, Jesus is the Lord of my life, what you're saying is he's the boss, he's in charge, he's in control, and he gets to tell me what to do. He's told me twice to get baptized, both by his example and by his words. Baptism is important to believers. I don't think baptism saves us, but I can't imagine any saved person saying, ah, baptism. I don't really need that, do I? It's not about what you need. It's about what you were asked to do. Who's in charge of your life? Baptism is important. And I feel like we as a church have have tried to put a good, solid emphasis on baptism. In fact, uh, I I just have seen more baptisms since I've been here than I have seen in the rest of my Christian life. It's been exciting for me to be a part of that. And uh, it's not always old people, it's, it's young people, which I think is cool as well. I think sometimes there's this idea that, well, I mean, does that really count? They're a kid. Yeah, it counts. They started learning to follow Jesus Christ as Lord very early, 
That to me is very impressive compared to somebody that waited till the end of their life to follow him as Lord. They have their whole life to follow him now, and they're setting that example now. They're going to follow him as Lord. Baptisms are exciting. We have, again, uh, uh, three baptisms today, two first service, one second service. So excited about that, which means I got to hurry up with my sermon here. Uh, to make those things happen. But anyway, Jesus now, he comes to be baptized, and it's this amazing scene. Uh, if, if you can imagine this, as Jesus is baptized, he goes down in the water, and after he comes up out of the water, the heavens opened, a dove descends on him, and that dove, we're told, is the Spirit of God. He saw the Spirit of God descending as or like a dove. So the heavens open, the Spirit of God descends on him and lights on him or literally is upon him. This Spirit of God is upon him. And then the voice of heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So now earlier I asked you, who are the three who've endorsed the ministry of Jesus? John the Baptist, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. And whose ministry did they not endorse? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. See, Jesus, the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies, also carries with him the endorsement of the prophet John and the endorsement of the Spirit who is God and the Father who is God. Uh, Now in that statement, we have this uh, cool connection there in verse 17. This is my beloved Son, which is in fact true, right? Because Matthew chapter 1, after we heard the genealogy of Jesus, we see that Jesus was conceived by God. So this is God's Son, and I always like to make this point If God were to have a son, he would be God. Just like if if I have a son, he would be a human. If God were to have a son, his son would be God. Jesus Christ is God. So here we have the whole Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all gathered together in this moment, this powerful moment, as again the heavens open up and the Spirit comes down. And the voice of God is heard in this moment. We'll see this in a very similar vein happen again in the Gospel of Matthew, this time in chapter 17, where that same phrase will happen, speaking to a couple of the disciples. God will say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But he adds one little statement there. He says, listen to him. (laughs) This is my son. Listen to him. But we now see this endorsement of God on the ministry of Jesus. It's powerful for us to make these connections. It's important for us to recognize that the one that we follow, our Savior and Lord, is endorsed as such by God himself. The things that we believe, again, establish for us a steady, firm foundation. Now, there's other areas of application we can see in here. Uh, Obviously, when we repent, we're to repent to this place of obedience. 
That's what repentance is. It's not just a change of heart. It's a change of heart that leads to a change of actions, that we would do something about it. Uh, We also recognize in this, if Jesus is in fact the King of heaven or the Lord whose way has been made ready, and he showed us an example and he's given us an instruction to be baptized, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ who hasn't been baptized, I would say, what are you waiting for? It's time to be baptized. Let's do this thing. Let's stop playing the game and let's do this thing. And find as you're obedient in that one very small thing that you'll be in the habit now of being obedient in more and more things so that God can use you in more and more powerful ways. So your job, your instruction this week, uh, always I want you to look at the passage and ask these questions. What is God saying to me in his word? And now what am I going to do about it? Because it's not just about a changed mind. It's about changed actions following those things. And then share a conversation with somebody about those things. Number one, so you can hold yourself accountable. But number two, it gives you an opportunity to begin to disciple them. These are the things I'm learning in God's Word. This is what I saw in Matthew chapter 3. And just have that conversation. Have the conversation at your house, at the dinner table. Have that conversation at your workplace, in the break room. Have that conversation with your friends and family as you gather together. Look for specific people that you think to yourself, man, that that young believer there, somebody needs to come alongside him and grow him in his faith. Well, it's already in your mind. It's in your heart. It's now your opportunity that you would share with them just simple conversations that would lead them to change their lives to follow Christ as Lord. And then in preparation for next week, read Matthew chapter 4. Every day we'll get to see the familiar again, the temptation of Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, uh, as well as the calling of some of his disciples. And so all kinds of cool things going on in chapter 4 for us to look forward to. But let's go ahead. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer, uh, and then we will have a baptism. Uh, Heavenly Father, thankful for today. Again, thankful for your word. Uh, Lord, I would pray for myself and for others that we would be examining ourselves and comparing ourselves to the word. Father, that you would help us to see things from your perspective, that we would be able to look at our life through the lens of your word. If there are areas of our lives where we haven't made you Lord, would you show us how we can better do that? Areas of our lives where we haven't surrendered fully to you, show us how to truly repent. Lord, let your word change our minds, change our hearts, and as those things are changed, we would also do the work of changing our actions. Not so that we can earn our salvation, but just simply because we're so grateful to you for our salvation. Father, we thank you, we love you, we accept your endorsement of your Son, Jesus Christ, as King not of heaven, but King of our lives. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Lead us away in worship there, Doug.